a Podcast One production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, and we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. I've led teams on newspapers, on a magazine and now in my own business. And in this series, I seek out the experts to understand how you and I can be better leaders. I've often wondered how you can be nice and still get stuff done. In New South Wales, Bronnie Taylor is the Minister for Mental Health, Regional Youth and, importantly, women. Bronnie Taylor is one of those people we all want to befriend. She's kind, funny and empathetic. She lived overseas as a kid, but studied nursing, married a farmer, and moved to the bush. But today, she's a politician. Yes, even she's a bit surprised. In this fascinating episode, Bronnie talks about how having an empathetic side can be a career bonus. Bronnie Taylor, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. I want to start with asking you whether you think you were born a natural leader. Such an interesting question, isn't it, when you have to sort of think about, you know, yourself in that capacity. Look, I've always loved people and I've always loved friendships and loved, you know, relationships. And whether that sort of is an indicator of that, I don't know. But I actually think that everyone's got it within them, to be completely honest. It's just about the opportunities that you have and the opportunities you have to step up and whether you want to step up. But um, I think I've always had a level of confidence. I was really blessed with a great education. And I think that when you have that, it creates opportunities for you. And so I think that, I don't know, I I mean, I've always thought that I've always stood up for what I thought was right. It was always a really big value in my family to do that. My father was a great promoter of, well, if you don't like something, how are you going to change it? So I think that leadership comes in all shapes and sizes. And I think that for me, it's meant to public life. But for other people, leadership means different things, but it doesn't make it any less worthy. If you don't like something, how are you going to change it is just excellent old school advice, isn't it? And I think many of the people that we interview say that um, as leadership experts, but in different, in a different form of language. You have had in many ways a really traditional Australian upbringing with that no-nonsense country approach. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got to being uh, a leader in this state of New South Wales? Sure, sure. So look, for me, it was quite unusual. I had, um, my dad worked for Qantas, so I actually lived overseas in my younger years and then obviously came back to Australia. But dad was a really proud Australian and very much lived by those sort of values of hard work. And dad didn't go to uni, neither of my parents did. So it was all about just working really, really hard to get the outcomes that you needed. And I guess I grew up with that. I grew up with seeing him work extremely long hours. And, you know, mum was actually um, a stay-at-home mum at that time. But then later in her mid-career went on to have her own small business, which was really successful. So I'd sort of witnessed all that and you're sort of a a passive observer, if you know what I mean. But yeah, I think that for me then, I I just knew I wanted to do nursing after I had one of those, um, you know, those career days you have at school and we had this really fabulous girl, Edwina, and she came and spoke about nursing. She'd been overseas and she'd worked as a cancer nurse in London. And I just thought I was sitting in that hall, you know, on the bare floor in your school uniform. And I thought, wow, that's really what I want to do. 
But I know, I really know that if I hadn't moved to the country, I really don't think I would have had the opportunities that I've had. And I say that really honestly and not in a self-deprecating way, but just in a really honest way, because what it did was sparked a bit of a fire in me because my patients didn't have that same ability to access care. And although I was realistic enough to know that we couldn't do certain things in Kuma like radiotherapy and things, I just... I couldn't stomach, honestly, the fact that, you know, they had to travel to get treatments and procedures done that we could do locally. So I think if I hadn't been exposed to that at that moment in time, I wouldn't have been inspired to say, okay, we really need to do something. And because in nursing, it's really personal because it's your relationship with your patient. And when you do a lot of home-based care like I did, you're going into people's home, you're, you're meeting their families, you're part of that whole sort of process, that that's what really motivated me to do it. But it was also having an amazing bunch of women that were part of this community group that actually valued what I said and said, well, what do you think we need if we want to do a fundraiser? And I said, well, we need an oncology clinic. Now, I don't think that would have happened to me had I been in Sydney. And so that just sparked it in it for me. And then again, I was really lucky. I got tapped on the shoulder by another woman who said, you really should run for parliament. And I'd honestly, hand on heart, never ever thought or had any interest really in politics because I'd grown up overseas. I hadn't grown up in that, in an Australian democracy or Australian politics or being that interested in it. Um, having a having a marginal seat like Eden Monero and Monero sort of sparks a bit of an interest because your vote's so valuable. But I'd honestly never thought about it. So again, for me, it was, it was opportunity. You've also spoken about the importance of female leaders and mentors in your career. Uh, and many of us advise you to go and find those sorts of mentors. You obviously found them naturally. Tell me who they were and why they were so important to your career path. Look, for me, so one of the most um, incredible people was a patient, a lady called Susan Mitchell, who I went to see who had pancreatic cancer. So we knew it was a certain defined time, right? And she was the one that said to me, so I'd be on these home visits and she'd say, and and look, I didn't realise, but she was really big in the National Party, right? But because I wasn't that interested, as I said, it didn't sort of face me. I just knew she was this fierce community advocate. So I was quite nervous during the home visits, you know, thinking, whoa. But she was the one that said to me, you need to do this, you know. So we'd be lying there needing to talk about her treatment and her patient and her, you know, trajectory. And she'd want to talk about, no, you need to get into politics. You need to put your hand up. You need to do that. And then I was really fortunate. I actually got, you know, tapped on the shoulder by a woman who was in parliament who said, you know, you really need to run. And look, I, I've, I laughed. I said, oh, God, what a joke. Came home and said to my husband, oh, they want me to run for politics. Isn't that hilarious? You know, and he actually said, well, I think you should. And I almost fell over. And then it was a group of women in Cooma when we wanted to progress the idea for an oncology clinic and the health service didn't want to support it. And they were all women. And there's this amazing woman called Sue Litchfield who originally started off in the ABC a long time ago. She's about 78 now. And then she met a farmer and moved out to County Guinea. And then she didn't sort of work in media. And she was head of that committee at the time. And she has stood by me all the way and stood on pre-poll and did all of that and said, we've got to support Bron. And when I went, ran for local council, 
all these women who we had helped fundraise with um, for the oncology clinic all came out and manned booths for me in local government. And so it has been women all the way who you naturally come across because I think women get a lot of joy from seeing other women succeed. I completely agree. And, you know, there's exceptions, but it is very yeah. special to watch when you see women just backing women. Yep. Anything's possible then. Empathy is perhaps uh, the buzzword for leadership as we go into 2021. I'm reading a lot about empathetic leaders and that you need to develop that skill. You obviously had empathy from the outset. Would would you agree with that or do you think uh, it was developed by virtue of working with patients? I think probably both. I've always really felt things. You know, I, I, you know, people talk about their gut and talk about, I, I really feel things. And I have a, I think perhaps too, Helen, growing up in Asia and growing up with a lot of our good mates being journos and foreign correspondents and stuff, well, dad, mum and dad's good mates. So my mum, she is an, she was an amazing golfer, right? And so one minute mum would be out having to go to an official dinner with dad and sitting with President Marcos and stuff. But but where mum really wanted to be was with the guy who carried her golf bag whose, whose child was sick. And mum would take us out there to help and we would either help with doing stuff with the house or or help them. So I don't, I don't think mum, I just think it was something that mum and dad instilled in us. And because we lived in Asia, we saw that inequity and that unfairness that exists and that, that terrible poverty, but also that hope and extreme happiness that comes from having you know, sometimes you can have nothing, but you can be so much happier than someone that has a lot. And so I think I had that real sense of fairness and I really felt it. And look, you know, dad used to joke, right, that he'd wait to see which page he got to in the book before I'd burst into tears, you know. And I, I know sometimes <laughs> that sounds like weakness and all, she's soft, but it's actually that I felt stuff. And I think that as a nurse, I really did. And I, I really cared about my patients. Now, that can be a strength that can also be a weakness, yeah, because you can sort of over-involve or you can step too far in and particularly in palliative care and cancer care, that can be tough. But I'd, I wouldn't swap it for anything. I wouldn't swap being able to feel things for not being able to feel things. And I think with empathy and kindness and consideration and time that you can give to people, that's when you really get to good outcomes, you know? Yes, and I think a lot of uh, the young women that listen to this podcast would identify with those emotions and think that it might be a weakness. What advice do you have for people who do feel things and do worry that they burst into tears when something goes, you know, is emotional or goes wrong in the in the office? Because as you say, it is also a great strength and one that a lot of leaders are now being encouraged to to work on. I just, I just agree with you. It is such a strength. And I think for decades, women have been sort of convinced and told that it's a weakness and it's not. You know, if you have a person who's, I mean, I, I work with the deputy premier who's Italian. He is really emotional, but people don't say that to him. And I'll be doing visits with him where he will be visibly upset and touched by something. And people think that's magnificent. Now, if I still, I think sometimes women have a physiological response to that and sometimes our voices get more high pitched. So that's actually something I've had to work on because the more annoyed or the more I feel something, I tend to elevate my pitch. And so I, you know, and I don't know if that maybe that's a physiological thing as well, but I don't think we should be afraid of it because I think it's real. And I think that if 
people can see that you feel something and you can engage, whether you can actually help them out of that problem or not in your leadership capacity, they're actually going to respect the fact that they know that you understand and that you care. And I think we've really got to turn that around as women and say, actually, this is one of our greatest strengths because we have an innate sense of what's right and what's wrong. And we have this ability to be able to connect with people on that emotional level. Like we talk about emotional intelligence all the time, don't we? Women are so freaking good at it, you know, and let's embrace it and let's use it and let's use it as a power and a force for good and wear it with a badge of honour. Are you seeing signs that it is okay in the world that you now inhabit? Honestly, not really, if I'm to be really honest. Um, but I'm just going to keep doing, I, I've made a bit of a promise to myself, um, Helen, and that is that I I want to leave those doors at Parliament the same person that I was when I came in. And hand on heart, it's a bloody battle a lot of the time because I've been told a lot that I'm too nice for politics or that I'm too soft or that I feel things or when things happen in the chamber um, and, you know, I've had quite a bit happen to me on a personal level in the chamber that I just need to forget about it and that's just politics. Well, I am so sick of hearing that. So all I can do is work on my own behaviour and the way I react to people and the way that I treat people and if people think that I'm too nice, which I'm really not, and people that really know me know that, um, I'm, I'm prepared to be strong and to have the, the conversations when I need to, but I'm not going to stop being who I am. And if people see that as soft and too nice for politics, well, quite frankly, that's an issue for them. Let's talk about being too nice. I mean, what is that? Do you think at times that's just an insult? It's another way of saying that you're actually not very good at this job. Look, I think actually a lot of the time it is very genuine. So in, say, in politics, the people that have said it to me, I think have said it in a really genuine way because I think that they've seen the brutality of sometimes what happens in my response. So I'm I'm actually taking that as a bit of a compliment. And I also think, well, that that's great if you want to think I'm really too nice. But, you know, watch other people take me on and see how I'll respond um, but I'm not going to respond and being, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to not be nasty and vindictive, but I'm sure I'll stuff up sometimes, Helen. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that is sometimes hard too, right? Because you choose to sort of take a certain angle, but sometimes look, emo- sometimes things just get the better of us and it feels so good for that split second to be really nasty and really mean, but you, you tend to usually regret it. But I don't know what too nice to you know, to be honest with you, to answer your question, I I don't know what people are seeing in me that they think that I'm, you know, that they'll often say that. But I think it's in in one occasion with one person that said it to me, I think it was a real compliment at the end of last year with other people that use it as an excuse when they're really nasty to me or attacking my family in, in the parliament, then I think it's an insult. It's just such an interesting concept because I think a lot of women do want to be seen as nice and we do take it as a compliment that we're a nice person and we spend much of our life, you know, being told, be be a good girl, you know, don't rock the boat. And so once you're in a leadership role, it becomes a double-edged sword. It becomes difficult uh, to manage because you go into a role and people think you're nice and then you have to be tough and then that's quite a shock 
quite often to the people that you're managing or the people that are watching your progression. And I think a lot of young women really struggle with that being tough, but also being nice. And I think probably the answer is fairness. Do you agree? I do. I think you're exactly right. And I think everything you've said is really poignant to how women really feel. I think one of the great things for me personally, I mean, sometimes getting older sucks in a lot of ways, right? You know, <laughs> 50, 51 coming up 52. So all those things that I think women face, but it also is quite empowering because I think you're able to harness those those powers of women and, and be nice, but be fair, but also be strong. I think it's a lot harder on younger women. And I think, you know, we all like to be liked, don't we? Men are the same, you know, and so... I think that's a good point. They do like to be liked as well, even the really tough ones. Everybody yeah. likes to be liked, you know. And even in politics, when you're meant to, you know, not like the other side or you're not meant to, you know, like someone because they're a member of some political party, you watch everyone bending over backwards to try and get people to like them. It's a normal human response. So it's just how people categorise it, I think. You've obviously developed a fair degree of toughness, though, because as a obviously a very nice person um, and, you know... Taken as a compliment, it's, Helen. It's definitely a compliment. <laughs> and I was trying to work out why it's so obvious that you're a nice person. Well, it just is. But you've taken some pretty tough stands. You've put your hand up and joined a political party, which immediately identifies you from a particular perspective, uh, which means opponents to that political perspective immediately attribute a whole bunch of attributes to you which may or may not be true, but you've obviously been prepared to say, this is what I believe and this is the party I want to represent. That is a big call. So mm. where do you get your toughness from? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I so vividly remember it, you know, and I really, really considered it when I joined. I really, I really mulled over it because um, when you do that and you join an organisation or something like that, and I think that's probably why we see people not doing it in record numbers, whether it's unions or whether it's political parties, is that you you suddenly get quite defined by that. So I think you have to be very comfortable with that and that position. So I think for me, I saw it, um, you know, I, I looked at it, I thought about it. I think that it's more about values these days and where your values sit and so how you doing. Look, you know, I, I don't agree with everything that people agree with in, in my political party. I don't. And just as they don't agree with me on some of the things that I push through, but I, I hope that most of the time we come to a respectful balance and that, you know, voices are heard and, and people are heard and, and respected for their values. But at the end of the day, in politics, it is a numbers game. So even in any sort of political organisation, you have policies and you have things like that, that you go forward through and you push through. And for us, it goes to a conference. And so it's voted on and it's the majority. And then you have to have to accept that. But I suppose I was just really ready. I really, I really, I think too, maybe living overseas and changing countries a lot. When I moved into, into Nimitabel and then being embraced by this community, which I hadn't really had my whole life, I feel really connected and really, um, I feel a responsibility to represent it and to do everything I can. For me, I've chosen politics. Many other people choose many other avenues. So I guess to me, it was it was a really good fit, the, the National Party that I chose, because it really just represented people in the country. And that's what I really wanted to do and focus on. But 
I appreciate that a lot of people don't join political parties anymore, but it doesn't mean that they'll come out, not come out and support them and support different issues. And um, I think that's probably going to be the way forward in a lot of ways. I want to talk about country women in particular, but just before I I leave this, are there days where you're sitting in politics, given that you came from um, a nursing background into a political party and uh, into a parliament, where you go, really don't like that policy at all. And those guys over there who are the Labor Party, actually, I completely agree with them. Are there days where you just go, I want to be, I want that policy, not the policy that I've got to support? Honestly, yes. Yes. (laughs) I just, I can just, I just know that you would feel like that because you didn't come through the the, the usual channels where mm. you've, um, and sometimes what's happening on one side of the chamber makes more sense than the other. It's easy for me as a media person to mm. see it that way, but mm. it must be tough for someone like you to go, oh, why am I supporting yeah. this policy today? Yeah, yeah. And that's why we have a process where, and, and the Nats have a really robust process of discussing things in your party room and doing that together and getting all views. And and that's the thing, isn't it? Like, you know, we, we represent places from the North Coast to, you know, the middle of central New South Wales. So th- those, I, those ideologies and those policies are going to clash at times, but you've got to try and land somewhere in the middle. And and the thing is, there's things that I've really pushed through. Like I, I felt really strongly about the legalisation of abortion. I, I, I felt absolutely strongly about that. Now, in terms of access to those services, that was already there. You could do all of that. Some people argued that it was very symbolic. And for some people on all sides of parliament, it was absolutely horrendous for them because their fundamental belief was against that. So it taught me to respect that and to know that all of those people sometimes, I mean, that's probably a bad example because it was a conscience vote, but there's things that I really passionately believe It is actually in. a really good example of, of hearing, you know, passionate views on both sides. Yeah, and at the end of the day, when that vote was taken and there were people that were absolutely devastated because their whole being of how they've been brought up, their faith, which is so important to them, was devastating for them. Mm. For me, not getting the euthanasia bill through was devastating for me. But I've learned the behaviour from people across all sides of the political party that you have to accept the process. And sometimes you'll be really behind something, but there's other things that people have had to come on board with because it's important to me. So with, with, that, with that debate on the reproductive bill, there was a fellow who people would see in my party room who they would think was this really conservative, maybe right-wing sort of guy, you know. He said that day, when we were debating this and where we were going to stand and whether it was going to be a conscience vote, all of those things, he said, this is an issue for us to listen to the women in this room. And for me, I thought, wow, respect, respect to you. Because I think that, you know, there's, like you said, there's, there are things, yes, that I think this isn't right. I don't like this, but you know what? It's about what we can achieve as a team. And it's about that compromise and things. And you can go through and you can fight it as as far as you can go, but you have to accept the decision sometimes. I think you again make an excellent point about leadership and that's respect. Let's talk about rural, regional and remote women. It's one of your most passionate areas. Um, and we've launched uh, with Future Women and yourself and the New South Wales government a scholarship program for regional, rural and remote women. And we've had an extraordinary response. Um, what leadership skills, and I don't know whether this is even a good question, actually. Um, you might go, don't be ridiculous. Um, what leadership skills do country women bring to organisations, if any that are different at all? Yeah, I, I, I think um, 
It's a good question and I'm so excited about the uptake of this and I just I just want I what does it say that you go out and you offer this and you're not sure how it will go and you've just had this phenomenal response that you possibly can't give everyone the opportunity what it tells me is you know there are all these women out there that that just want the chance and it it is harder for us it's it and that look that's actually what drove me from a patient perspective was that I saw women making worse choices for their cancer treatment because they were so far from home. And the same goes with leadership skills, with courses, with everything. We find that they won't do it because they've got to be away from home. And that's not a sexist view or a, oh, because we're married to country men and they're conservative and they won't let us go. I mean, that's ridiculous because actually, and this is a bit of a thing too, country men really support country women. Like it's quite, people often think that it's this, you know, this hierarchy sort of thing. It's actually not, you know. I mean, look at me. And I mean, I'm married to a farmer and he's just the biggest freaking support out, you know. I mean, my mother said to me once, oh, you know, not many men would put up your way all the time. And I go, oh, mum, actually they do now, you know, Mm. and and that's really different. So I think the difference for country women is that because we have the um, the absolute challenge of distance and the absolute challenge of access, that I think we just get stuff done. So their approach to things is just to bog in and get it done. They're not going to worry about, you know, whether they are seen to be doing all the sandwiches when we've got bushfires going. They don't care. They're out there on the fire front. They're in the kitchen doing the, the sandwiches for the volunteers. They're doing everything. And I think that they're really resilient and they come up with sort of solutions to things. They're very common sense focused country women. There's not a lot of time for, you know, all the other hoo-ha. They just, they're focused on something and they want to deliver for their community because there's going to come a day when they might need that service. So they have to ensure that it's sustainable. And the thing is, is that every couple of years, someone might come in and want to take it away so they want to find solutions. And, and I think that's what we are. We are very solution focused. And I imagine that you've recognised that, you know, in, in uh, New South Wales and in, in many states, uh, the thoughts of country women are not really at the forefront of thinking for either for governments or even for organisations more broadly. Yeah, it's interesting. I think sometimes people think that, but then if you've ever been to a CWA conference, it, it will and it will light your socks. I can tell you, you know, they they debate really serious, serious issues, and they are very assertive in their views, and there are very differing views because that's the thing about the country, right? What's happening up in northern New South Wales is not sort of going to, might not float down on the coast of southern New South Wales. So there is, there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of difference in, in our regional communities as well. And there's a lot of different issues that are really um, at the forefront. I mean, some of our country communities and dealing with the issues of drugs and ice and things is just destroying people and families, whereas other communities, it's it's something else. So I think there's diversity in the issues that, that exist. Um, but I also think too that if you speak to any local member, whether it's local government, state government or federal government, and regardless of political party, oh, they're talking to women in their country communities because it is often the women that are coming forward with the issues and the women coming forward with the demands that things have to be changed because it's their families that are affected. It's their husbands that are out there in what we saw in the most horrendous drought known to man. It is their 
um, it is them that are actually driving those harvesters and those tractors. It is them that are on the forefront of the fire. It, it was all of those people that see that their children or their aunt or their uncle can't have access to the health services that they believe that they need. But they don't go out there and look for the accolades. They just want it fixed. They can get on with living the life that they love. I watched an amazing uh, episode of something on the ABC the other day about a young female vet who got a uh, plane license and she has a plane, she's married to a farmer and she flies all over the state fixing, helping uh, animals um, on remote properties and she talked about just loving being in the bush and away from everything and that's, um, that's the benefit of that lifestyle. Many people right now are thinking, I could do with a bit of that. I can work remotely, the MBN, Wi-Fi, Zoom, Microsoft Teams um, has made it possible for us to work from home. What do you think that's going to do for the lives of women in this country? Are we going to see more of them moving into rural towns and are you already seeing that? And is that a good thing or do you have concerns about it? I just think it is so exciting and we are seeing it. People are coming. There's no houses for rent in Cooma. There's hardly any houses to buy in Orange. Um, People, I was talking to a removalist company the other day, they can get a trip out of um, to Tamworth from Sydney. They can't get a returner. Uh, You know, people are actually seeing what, you know, I say this very respectfully, but they're actually seeing what we've known for a long time. And I think that COVID has provided that opportunity because of Zoom and because of, micro, you know, because of that ability to do that. Because because we had to do it, people have seen that it actually works, right? So it was always a preference of choice to say, oh, no, no, you know, you can't work remotely because of X, Y, Z. And look, I think we have to be really honest that we've still got really big communication issues and, and things like that. And, you know, for me on the farm, I'm I'm on satellite, but where if I can go down the South Coast, my reception is so much better in places. So you, we've got to be really honest about that. But the opportunities now for women, and I think we've seen that reflected in the applications for the leadership program. I wonder, like Helen, I really wonder if we hadn't had COVID and we hadn't had all those possible opportunities, would we have had that many people coming forward? Well, you know, the the, the point is we were offering um, a Platinum Plus leadership development program, which required you to be somewhere, whereas now we're offering you a program that is incredibly sophisticated and it can be done from your home, wherever you are. So, correct. The two things um, have collided to to get this brilliant response. I can't tell you how excited I am to meet these women. Like, <laughs> I know you said to me, can, can I see some of the applications? I haven't looked at them yet. <laughs> but I'm getting phone calls and, and emails and text messages from various people from around the state that are going, I don't know that I quite fit the criteria. Just apply. <laughs> um, because uh, you, between the two of us, we'll find a way to get as many women as possible into the program. And mm. you and I'll get a chance to, to meet them. Uh, and I think, you know, the exciting bit is bringing country and rural women into a big cohort of city slickers. Uh, I'm really interested to see what that does to mm. the future women community. Do you want to make a prediction about what will happen when I put all of them together? I reckon you're going to have a lot of those city slickers coming out and visiting the country and I can't wait. <laughs> I should um, add, because I am a country girl. Yeah. Um, so I always forget. I mean, I feel like a very city slicker given that I live, you know, five kilometres outside of, well, actually one and a half kilometres out of the centre of Sydney these days, but originally very much a country girl from South Australia. Um, 
you are you also in a, in a period of time where women are actually taking more leadership positions. So I just want to take a moment to say, you know, we're, we're in state governments at the moment where women are premiers and the opposition leaders, uh, which is a unique moment in time. If you'd been a decade earlier, you would have been in a very male environment. Can you tell me uh, what it's like to be at probably still a male-dominated uh, table, cabinet table, ministerial, party room, all that sort of thing, but you you are seeing more women taking leadership roles around you. Yeah, and I think there's, there's an incredible bunch of women coming through as well. So I think that's really exciting. And I think too that, you know, for me, um, I talk a lot about mid-career opportunity and the fact that, you know, I was in my mid to, I can't even remember, mid to late 40s when I first came in and for me, that was a really good time. And I think before we used to think, oh, we were done by then. And I think that now we're seeing that, that you can come in later when, you know, you've done a lot of the things that, that you want to do that are tying you to things. So I think that's really important. And look, I must say, I, I've never sat around the cabinet table and thought, oh, people aren't listening to me because I'm a woman. Sometimes I will feel like, oh, hang on, we need to put a different lens over that, but I'll just put my hand up and do it. And so we'll the other women in there. And and I think, you know, we've got a female premier, we've got a female opposition leader. I think that one really telling thing for me during COVID is that you've got the premier in Gladys, you've got uh, Dr. Kerry Chant, who is just the most incredible person, but also Elizabeth Coff, who is actually the Secretary of Health, which I think, you know, is one of the eighth largest businesses on the ASX. You don't see her at the press conferences, but she is absolutely phenomenal and the respect that I have for her and the admiration. And, you know, that is, that, that's three women leading this COVID response in a very, very expert way. And I think we should be so proud of that. Look, just as proud if there were blokes as well. But these, these women have worked so well together. They are outstanding in their field. And, and I just, I wish I could push Elizabeth out there as well, because, you know, she runs the entire New South Wales health system and we don't even know. <laughs> I know. And the point of this podcast is to say to everyone listening, you can do that. You know, it is now really, really possible because people have gone before you and proven that not only can you reach those heights, you can be excellent at the job as well. Absolutely. And and I do think it's really important, as you said, it's really important to see people that have gone before you. Mm. And I, I think that is vital. And that's why I think too, you know, for me, it has been that support that I've gotten from other women and also from men. Like, I think we have to be really honest about that. I'm, I'm really well supported by, you know, the men in my life at the moment, both work and personal. But I do think for me, it's the women that have gone and it's it's what I see. And I, I, I just, I feel so proud to be part of it and so privileged. And I say to people to don't, you know, put your hand up for those opportunities because they're out there. We can do it and there's people to support you. But also if it's not the right time, that's okay too, because there will be things that come along and you need to, you need to choose those at a time that suits you and a time that works for you because then you will absolutely embrace it. And now we've got this great opportunity for rural and regional women and there are so many out there, so many that haven't had those opportunities that are now going to be open to them. And I think with more people moving to the regions and demonstrating that, it's going to 
inspire people. You know, you look at collaborative workplaces like Gillian Kilby's doing in Dubbo. I mean, all of that. I mean, I've got a friend who I was at school with who was a real standout, so much, you know, really smart, all those sorts of things. But, you know, she moved to the country and there just weren't as many opportunities for her. Well, she went back a few years ago and did some things with Gillian through this place in Dubbo. She lives out on a property in Geary and she's just flying now. And those opportunities weren't there, but they're there now. And we're going to see a real surge and a real uptake and we're going to have a richer community for it. What would you say your leadership weaknesses are, if any? Oh, look, I'm terribly disorganised. <laughs> I, I always have been. It's true, you know, just drive my parents crazy. So that that's a real challenge for me. And it's interesting because I think your weaknesses are the things that freak you out. So if I don't know what's going on or I don't have what I need or I just go into a bit of a, I have to do a little bit of a self-check sometimes and go, Bronnie, seriously, calm the farm you know, for goodness sake, it's not that big a deal and move on. But that's so what I do about that though, Helen, is I make sure I've got really good people that are there to help me. And I think, I think myself, and sometimes I get in trouble from my team because they say, oh, don't, don't bag yourself out or don't cut yourself down. I go, well, actually, sorry, that's who I am. And it's real country humour as well. It keeps us honest and keeps us real. But also I just make sure that I have people that are around me that absolutely complement my weaknesses and let me play to my strengths. And that's, you have to, to, for people to say, oh no, well, you shouldn't say that and you shouldn't say that you have a weakness, crap, you know, because you're human, we all do. And so if you can, if you can say that and you can know that you need help with that and you can make sure that you surround yourself with a team that complements that, ah, you can fly. What are your strengths? I look, I love people. I really love relationships and people and, and forming that sort of, I'm so interested in people's stories. It was so funny when over the holidays was walking on the beach, you know, and took the farm dogs down to the sea, which is pretty hilarious, let me tell you. <laughs> but, um, you know, people are walking their dogs, right? So you've got that commonality of, of, of a pet. And so I just stop and naturally talk to them. And I met some amazing people like this woman who fosters guide dogs and, you know, all sort of thing and drove my husband nuts. <laughs> he said, do you have to stop and talk to every single person? Like, can we not just go for a walk? But I'm interested. So I think that, you know, that, that's a strength for me and that I really like people. And so that's what I'm, I'm focused on and I'm, I'm fascinated by. And I hope I never lose that. Um, and, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I see as my strength. Bonnie Taylor, it has been an absolute joy to talk to you and I can see why you got elected in a marginal seat. Uh, Anyone who wants to talk to everybody on the beach will always get elected in marginal seats. Fabulous to talk to you. Some fantastic insights there and um, thanks for being a part of the, the scholarship program and no doubt you and I'll connect again to meet those fabulous women. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you, Helen. And can I just say on closing... Thank you for what you do and thank you for providing these opportunities for women because if it wasn't for people like you that have been so successful and paved the way and now spend your time giving back and making sure that other women have the opportunities, none of us would be where we are. So thank you very much to you too. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson.